0: environmental,
1: conversations,
0: on creative art, scholarship, and teaching.
1: This, this is, is EcoCast. ECOCAST. Hello, and welcome to ECOCAST, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and the Environment. I'm Lindsay Jolivet.
0: And I'm Alex Tisher.
1: Today, we are thrilled to have Abby Good joining us to talk about Agrotopias. And Abby Good is an associate professor of English and sustainability studies at Plymouth State University in New Hampshire. She's the author of Agrotopias, an American Literary History of Sustainability, which is what we'll be discussing today. And peer reviewed essays on agrarianism, land crab ecology, transnationalism, eugenics, and interdisciplinary education. Her current research focuses on early climate theories in US literature. Thank you for joining us, Abby.
2: Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So if before we get into some specifics, if you'd love to give us a sort of introduction to your book, that'd be great.
2: Well, actually, I'd like to start with the first two sentences of the book. Um, We can't solve the climate crisis unless Black Lives Matter. And climate change is also a racial justice problem. So these are headlines from the summer of 2020. um, As the world was embroiled in the COVID pandemic, the world reacted in outrage to the murder of George Floyd. Um, And and these headlines really reflect the twinned crises, maybe the the triple crisis um, of our time and the interrelated history of racial and environmental violence in the US. also in that summer, in that same summer of 2020, the environmental organization known as the Sierra Club, maybe you've heard of it, um, <laughs> responded to these crises by publicly acknowledging its own racist history and um and making a pledge to center voices of color in all of all of its future work. And so this announcement called attention to the racism of some of the Sierra Club's <laughs> early leaders, including John Muir. Um, and, and this actually drew a lot of shock and indignation from some of the readers, if you if you read the comments. Um, my claim, my claim in Agrotopias is that as white environmentalists today are reckoning with their racist legacies, with their xenophobic legacies, even as they reevaluate figures such as Muir um, and Theodore Roosevelt, the deeper and the subtler origins of this history uh, remain largely unexamined. And in some cases, they remain actually deeply intact. And so Agrotopia is working to shed light on these origins going all the way back to the time of Thomas Jefferson. Um, Jefferson, who famously had this vision of an agrarian republic, of a nation of small farmers. Um, Well, as the 19th century sort of progressed, Uh, many Americans became concerned that Jefferson's vision was under threat, under threat from population growth, from racial mixing, and from what I call reproductive chaos. Um, These phenomena were seen as threats to the nation's agrarian destiny. Um, Well, in response to these threats, U.S. writers made use of an early form of sustainability rhetoric. Um, they tried to rescue and recuperate Jefferson's dream. They promoted agrarian living as the solution to what they saw as population crises of the time. And this, this you might be thinking, this is not dissimilar to some forms of sustainability rhetoric today um, that promote back to the land or return to rural living and local economies. Uh, but the major difference is that these writers the writers featured in this book actually reshaped agrarianism to develop an early eugenic notion of sustainability, uh, defined as the following, the ability to feed and breed a racially homogenous American small farming population. So this is this is an early sustainability rhetoric that is focused on shaping just as much as sustaining the American population. And it appears in different areas, um, in text ranging from gothic novels to black nationalist manifestos to eco-feminist writings. Um, and disturbingly, this rhetoric has not gone away. It's actually shaped and influenced many environmental movements about uh, wilderness preservation, natural resource conservation, local foods, uh, population control, of course. So that by the end of the book, you think, my goodness, <laughs> it's, no, it's no wonder. It is no wonder that early Sierra Club members held racist beliefs. It's no wonder that Sierra Club leaders were also active in the American eugenics movement. That's not a surprise Mm -hmm. at all. Um, So this book is really calling us to question the benevolence um, of environmental thought in a way that we have not done. Um, And it's showing how ideas about race and reproduction were really central to this early sustainability thinking.
1: Thank you so much for that excellent explanation, Abby. I think that will really help people frame the rest of our conversation and understand what we're going to talk about. I feel really inspired by your book, partially because I am also in, I'm in an area area studies department. I'm in East Asian languages and cultures, which is also a place in which the environmental sort of methodology has been excluded because it is not white. And so it is totally separate Mm. from the sort of rhetoric that was, again, developed in America and Europe with the saving the countryside, saving the wilderness, preserving things that's so different and did not take into account cultures in East Asia, for example. So I, I yes, I really appreciate that your your work of, you know, this, is, of course it's a much different situation, but it still has that framing of, okay, what can we reconsider about eco-criticism, the environmental humanities, how we framed environmental thought. So going with that, can you talk more about the term agrotopia and mm-hmm. explain more exactly what that means in your book and in the world.
2: Yeah. So I think what I'll do is I'll define agrotopia and then I'll give um, especially because you mentioned area studies and, and thinking also about the broader global context here, I will give counterexamples um of agrotopian thinking. So agrotopia, agrotopia is this term I'm coining. And agrotopia is an idealized world of agrarian stability and order and perfection. And for those invoking it, it is this comforting fantasy, this comforting alternative to unsustainable conditions. Like other utopian ideals, um, agrotopias are speculative visions. Um, They represent both the good place and no place. Um, And also like many other utopian visions, they are actually not They're not actually utopian for everyone. (laughs) Yes, Um, of course. (laughs) So agrotopias are, in my book, they're characterized as much by reproductive order and racial Mm -hmm. homogeneity as they are by small farming and land stewardship. So as writers envisioned agrotopias, they adapted agrarian ideals to concepts of so-called racial improvement and selective breeding. Agrotopias are imagined elsewhere. This is really important. Mm-hmm. They are envisioned at different scales and locations. They're geographically flexible, and they all represent escapes to. Um, I'm sorry. They all represent attempts to escape, mm-hmm. um, or transcend um, even an unsustainable world. So mm-hmm. this can happen. Uh, you know, in terms of just imagining an elsewhere beyond U.S. borders, or it can be beyond the globe even. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- this happens often in ways that reproduce expansionist and settler colonial and mm-hmm. exclusionary ideologies. Um, so agritopias, as they are imagined, they exist beyond the threat mm-hmm. of environmental decline. There's a sense of escape, mm-hmm. as I've said. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the text that I analyze, um, they exist in spaces such as the unsettled U.S. Mm. West Right. This Mm -hmm. idea of a sort of open land, the Texas borderlands, the eastern coast of Africa or the heart of the Amazon. They're just as variable as the definition of elsewhere itself. They can be um, sprawling and and broad or they can be really small and hermetically sealed. They could be nested within U.S. borders or as far Mm -hmm. away as possible. But broadly speaking, agrotopias are these fantasies of starting over, starting over in a new, new world. I call it a kind of new world reboot in Mm -hmm. in the book. Um, It's imagining a space that's unadulterated, a space Mm -hmm. that's already abundant um, and and protected from these imagined uh, pollutants Mm -hmm. and their attempts Mm -hmm. to revise and reclaim this long lost agrarian ideal. Uh, and I should also note, although it might seem obvious to listeners, I should note that agrotopias, um, agrotopian visions tended to overlook um, or misrepresent Indigenous peoples and mm-hmm. practices mm-hmm. because they they often involved imagining yeah. this landscape of right course. for <laughs> settlement, right right mm-hmm. for cultivation, <laughs> right for colonization. Um, so so as U.S. writers are are making use of this early sustainability rhetoric. Um, they're they're pleading for an agrarian response to growing population and unsustainable agriculture. Um, mm-hmm. They envision these perfected new world sustainable societies as solutions to the nation's environmental crises, agricultural crises, mm-hmm. racial crises, population crises, and these imagined solutions are what I am calling agrotopias. Well. I offer some examples in my epilogue of paradigms that that mm-hmm. I think really diverge from and even work against um, agrotopian sustainability thinking. And I know that there are many more. Um, mm-hmm. First, you know, well-known Vandana Shiva's Earth Democracy. This mm-hmm. is a concept that... Um, really challenges the commoditization of life systems of the poor Mm. globally. It's about ecological security, Mm -hmm. irregardless of class, religion, um, uh, sex, gender, race. Um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, uh, because I'm really into teaching uh, her book Braiding Sweetgrass. Yeah, her her discussion (laughs) of the gift economy, um, where mutual responsibility characterizes the multi-species world Mm -hmm. and multi-species relationships, Um, or... As an alternative to sustainable development, um, The Honorable Harvest, which is about um, mm-hmm. a kind of giving back and reciprocity for what we've been given. And then finally, Wangari Maathai's, um, Rob Nixon calls it intersectional environmentalism, mm-hmm. Wangari Matai's yes. intersectional environmentalism, mm-hmm. um, where rural women, um, or what she calls foresters without diplomas, um, mm-hmm. work to restore their ecological communities, um, and th- that this kind of environmentalism intersects with um, other issues around political agency um, mm-hmm. and, and, and um, gender empowerment. So, so these approaches, um, anti-colonial approaches, um, these justice-focused approaches focus on rebuilding the commons, and they actually focus on staying in place, remaining in place rather than imagining an elsewhere, mm-hmm. another new, new world. Um, and to say that they're not interested in Jeffersonian reboots is, is, is an understatement.
1: Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really
2: about defending existing homes and longstanding yes. ecological practices. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that counterpoint is really important. And we could talk about that more, yeah. of course.
0: Yeah, well, I, I, I love that because it's sort of, I guess it's an entangling and a disentangling kind of at the same time. And, and you talk about feed and breed, but sustain and shape we have separated them, you know, that sustainability has sort of spun off yeah. into this, you know, I wouldn't say meaningless, but very loaded and problematic word. And, and looking at, you say, you know, shaping and sustaining, we've, we've run off with sustaining sustainability as its own sort of path. And we've forgotten mm-hmm. about the shaping or the, the yeah. feeding and yeah. the breeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess I would just ask, you know, you talk about the divide, that divide in American thought between environmental and racial and eugenic histories, Um, what, what do you think has perpetuated it and how does your book address that?
2: Well, now, you know, it's a year and a few months after it's come out. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, first, I just think when we think about this divide, I think first I should say, um, that for many people, for many scholars, for many communities, this divide does not exist. Um, so, so I just taught, um, I'm teaching environmental justice literature this semester, and I just taught Bell Hooks' essay, mm-hmm. um, Earthbound on Solid Ground. Mm-hmm. And, and in it, um, we talked about this last week, in it, she highlights that environmental and racial exploitation are interlinked. And the site of the plantation is actually a really painfully poignant example of this. Um, poor people and communities of color have cultivated regenerative, uh, restorative, positive relationships with the land where culture and identity are not separated from ecology. Um, so so this is not a divide that is universal by any means. People of color, poor people, disabled people, women, queer people, many communities have known for a long time that oppression of people and oppression mm-hmm. of the non-human environment are interlinked. Mm-hmm. Um, and this goes against, of course, romanticized notions of of peopleless places preserving mm-hmm. a beautiful wilderness and excluding places like uh, Flint, Michigan yes. or Love Canal or Bhopal mm-hmm. or uh you know New Orleans mm-hmm. from what we consider to be quote unquote nature or the environment yeah. um, but but as my book shows, there is still this implicit uh, sense of an admirable, Canonical, progressive American environmental tradition, characterized by this authoritative legacy of white men, characterized by names like Jefferson Thoreau, um, Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Walt Whitman, Theodore Roosevelt, and John <laughs> Muir. The names and the figures themselves, um, right? You know, you might think, well, this isn't entirely problematic, um, but what it is is we see in many contemporary agrarian writings, um, especially those focused on local foods or back to the land movements, um, we see this. And and I focus on Michael Pollan, Barbara Kingsolver, and Wendell mm, Berry yes. in my introduction because they're kind of really famous examples. Um, but there are other examples as well. These names are often invoked uh, with a sense of unquestionable benevolence. Um, right, like, oh, well, we need to learn from the wisdom of these figures. And it mm-hmm. suggests that there is this environmental tradition um, that is sort of sparkling and shimmering with this um wisdom, and that it's somehow isolated from the nation's racist history and violent history. So, but in fact, it's impossible to discuss um really accurately or um in any kind of nuanced way or with any attention to ambiguity the history of early sustainability thinking without considering the mm-hmm. racial and reproductive agendas yeah. that lurk within it, all kinds of agendas. Yeah. Um, so, so, And this is what my book shows. It makes clear that American fantasies um, of agrarian perfection, they didn't come out of nowhere. They emerged in reaction to these threats mm-hmm. to the nation's mm-hmm. environmental stability. Um, mm-hmm. and, and what we learn ultimately is that this history cannot be disentangled from this lesser known problematic history of population control that, that, that this history has just as much to do with images of, of pregnant women, of, of, um, starving orphans and of interracial violence as it does with mm-hmm. images of family farms and artisanal markets.
1: Mm-hmm. It is, I did find it very, <laughs> uh, a reminder of my past that like you t- focus on Barbara Kingsolver, cause that was an author, my mother, had so many books of when I was growing up and so it was like a very early a childhood author that I was familiar with was Barbara Kingsolver um and I haven't revisited her work in a long time and it was very interesting to have that brought back up because I was like oh this is a touch point that I I recognize and yes I remember I can't remember which book it is but her book about the like urban farm, like the little farm in the urban space and like <laughs> it is very much that uh, that entire rhetoric that you're discussing um on the flip side, I know very little about Jefferson. I'm I'm perfectly willing to acknowledge that. I'm um, especially as a person who studies not America at this stage <laughs> in my career. I, I know very little about sort of the nuance of American history in that in that um, sense. Would Would you be willing to discuss more specifics about Jefferson? Because maybe a lot of listeners don't know about that part of his legacy. Uh, what What do you think? what were these specific things he was doing with the environment and sustainability rhetoric? And what do you think we've taken to now? What do, what do we think about when we think about Jefferson now and how is it not continuing to highlight these sort of divides that he created?
2: Well, Jefferson, I mean, he experimented in composting. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he grew his own vegetables. Uh, this is discussed in the epilogue, but actually Michelle Obama's mm-hmm. White House kitchen garden, um, there's a part in her coffee table book, American Grown, where she talks about importing seeds from Jefferson's estate into her own kitchen garden. It's it's a really clear and compelling example of how Jefferson is seen as, in some ways, a forefather of sustainability in the agrarian sense, right? Because we know (laughs) sustainability can mean many things. Um, So there's so much in the book about Jefferson, (laughs) his climate thinking, his participation in larger intellectual transatlantic debates about race, slavery, natural history that I won't get into here. So I'll just say to listeners, you, know, you have to you really do have to read the book, especially mm-hmm. chapter two. Um, but but I, I will say this. broadly speaking, uh, Jefferson has a, a, di- a divided bifurcated legacy. Um, two really distinct versions of Jefferson have captured our historical imagination. Um, one is this idea of a founding farmer who dreamt of a sustainable nation. And the other is the infamous slave owner Mm -hmm. who fathered at least six children uh, with formerly enslaved woman, Sally Hemings, Mm -hmm. all while publicly and paradoxically opposing racial mixture of any kind. Mm -hmm. So he's an enigma um, and he's one person, but here's my claim. These two versions of Jefferson, even today, they rarely intersect. Um, you know, the infamous slave owner, obsessed with racial purity, rarely, if ever, makes an appearance in, for instance, contemporary agrarian writings mm-hmm. or writings about sustainability that um, invoke his legacy. Um, but but these these seemingly separate legacies, right? As an agrarian thinker on the one hand, and an early advocate of racial separa- separation and selective breeding on the other. Um, are deeply and inextricably intertwined. So my question is like, what happens when we finally notice this? Mm -hmm. Um, These Jeffersons were one and the same. This founding farmer was the same slave owner obsessed with racial purity. So when we recognize this, we also begin to recognize that this dual commitment to small farming and racial separation was actually not Jefferson's alone. And it became the conceptual backbone of this early strain of sustainability thinking that I'm tracing. So so Jefferson's eco-friendly legacy mm-hmm. actually obscures his other unfriendly, not so friendly legacies. Yeah. Um, and, and it enables, um, r- when we continue to separate Jefferson's legacies out this way, it enables agendas of racial exclusion and reproductive mm-hmm. control. And mm-hmm. um, we can talk about this and immigration restriction. We mm-hmm. can talk about it enables these agendas to really masquerade as charitable environmentalism um, because his name still carries such environmental weight. And it, it points to a broader issue with um, environmental rhetoric, I think.
0: Yeah, I, and I just, I saw statistics in the last couple of weeks or so, and, and your book has made me rethink a lot of, of how we <laughs> discuss you know founding farmers, founding fathers. But I, I saw a statistic about the, the amount of climate change Um, children's books, whether, you know, illustrated or not has Mm -hmm. skyrocketed in the last 15 years or so. And Mm -hmm. I, and I wondered when I saw that, I said, well, I wonder, I'm sure that there are books that talk about Jefferson, that talk about other founding fathers. And I wonder how they depict Jefferson. So I was just looking a couple Mm of days ago, like there's one from 2012, which one? the uh, 2016 agriculture book of the year called First Peas to the Table, how Thomas Jefferson oh. inspired a school garden. And God. there's also one from uh. 2015 by by Peggy Thomas mm. called Thomas Jefferson Grows a Nation. And I'll just say that again, mm. Thomas Jefferson Grows <laughs> a Nation. And, and, and it's amazing in the front cover, if you go look at it, is Jefferson with a like purple flower in his left hand and, and behind him are sort of like endless fields and I and once you read, you know, you can't unsee a lot of how we view um, our our as you call a like, proto ecological history of in the the illustration. There are no one in the fields um, behind him in these sort wow. of endless fields. And I just again, I I thank you one for for pointing this thing this out. It's it's an amazing sort of eye opening experience. Um, but it, it, I just wondered as soon as I saw there are, are tons of children's books that, that's got to be something that's contentious in that area. It can't, it can't be just you know Barbara Kingsolver and, and the the sort of tempting Michael Pollan Kingsolver um, mm-hmm. their books. I, I just think that's fascinating.
2: Yeah, no, I mean this is why the footnotes are so important in a book. There's there's so much, there's so much more, and there's so much you wouldn't expect um, in terms of examples of this. And of course, you know my field is environmental humanities but it's also american studies americanists are not surprised by jefferson's complex and multi-layered history but it's this broader popular and mainstream strand and you know i mean lindsay this must really bug you with you know focusing <laughs> on area studies just the, the kind of parochialism and exceptionalism that <laughs> that that kind of um characterizes American studies, even as we've moved into transnational and comparative Mm -hmm. studies. I think always of Rob Nixon's book. He has a whole chapter on this. Why does American studies always go back to Jefferson? Of course, I'm doing it again here. Um, (laughs) But it's because there is this um, uh, uh, kind of legacy of population control that predates you know the population bomb and the 20th century iterations of this that's entangled with this um unlikely bedfellow of agrarianism and small farming and so um i always look at the example of in my introduction the example of wendell berry and walt whitman Mm -hmm. wendell berry Mm -hmm. in the unsettling of, of america he likens an infertile woman to an infertile field just as walt whitman describes uh women's bodies as beds of soil. And of course for Whitman, this is about um, breeding as a horticultural process of cultivating farmers. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's actually really graphic. And I talk about this in the book. And then for Barry, he's concerned also about the reproductive and sexual health of the nation and how that intersects with agrarian sustainability. they're both about physical optimization and Mm -hmm. health um and and there's there's really there's really compelling discursive overlaps there Mm -hmm. it's not just you know oh this image of jefferson it's it's deeply intertwined
1: yeah Yeah. and that brings us to another term i really want to get to which is your like term gothic fertility (laughs) um which okay again as as someone who me specializes in sort of the horror and gothic methodologies and so eco- the eco-gothic and eco-horror yeah. you know i'm very you know fascinated by anything having to do with it but i i think this is a what you were just talking about a truly compelling example of how the body is also part of this the gothic fertility is just an interesting term because it brings in both the gothic but also what you're talking about of like fertility of body and earth there's very multifaceted sort of understanding about what how the environment became part of also like a horrifying erotic space in these sustainability conversations which I think many people wouldn't expect to happen.
2: Yeah I mean first I should say in environmental humanities we have this concept of the eco gothic we have Timothy Morton's dark ecology. So think about um ecology as, imbued with um, a world of strange strangers, of the uncanny, um, and approaching environmentalism less with a sunny, bright green view and more with a melancholic view. The gothic that um, is the gothic and gothic fertility has more to do with a gothic in American studies that goes back to a book by Teresa Godu called Gothic America, which is about um, the gothic, the American gothic, as not about... Castles and monsters and ghosts, but but about the haunting of history and really the haunting of racism and slavery. Mm-hmm. So I'm bringing um, the question of ecology to bear in some ways on this, this sense of the gothic. And I have an essay that is about gothic fertility that does get into these ideas of dark ecology. Um, but in terms of the book, like I said, agritopian fantasies did not come out of nowhere. They were motivated by a fear. Um, of unsustainability, a fear that the utopian uh, potential of the new world was was kind of mm-hmm. decaying, decaying into a dystopian horror show. And I make this point in the introduction, right? Sustainability as a term is ambiguous and contradictory, but sustainability rhetoric um, as, a, as a structure, as a pattern, mm-hmm. um, sustainability rhetoric really follows a discernible pattern. It is a reaction to a threat. It is a reaction to a sense that our future is in peril and that it needs saving. And so it's actually motivated by the absence of sustainability. Um, And gothic fertility is my term for what this absence looked like for many sustainability advocates, Um, especially in the late 18th and early 19th century. In the literary sense, it is the combination of horrific and reproductive imagery. And while it is the focus of my second chapter, um, it actually appears throughout the entire book. If I were to rewrite this, Gothic fertility would be a larger term throughout the whole book. Mm -hmm. It is the central concept that motivates early sustainability rhetoric. So for instance, um, in chapter one, land reform newspapers in the 1840s would promote establishing agrarian townships out west as a solution to poverty and labor conditions and urban crowding in the east. Mm -hmm the sense of reproductive chaos and uncontrolled sexuality that infuses these descriptions in these Mm -hmm. newspapers is an example of Gothic fertility. Um, And then in my second chapter, I discuss how writers depicted the Haitian revolution. This is a site of the Gothic in American literary studies. Um, They depicted the Haitian revolution as a Gothic disaster, but also as a Gothic reproductive disaster. Um, of unsustainability. Jefferson mm-hmm. himself was so horrified at the notion of racial mixing. Mm-hmm. Ironically, so of course mm-hmm. he saw racial division as the solution.
1: As you said, co- sort of the the tropic, also, which is another which is another tie into the sort of um, a lot of environmental post colonial environmentalism in Southeast Asia oh. and Asia is very much t- discusses the same things you bring up in your book, the tropics or the rainforest as these horrible, erotic, dangerous, spooky places because a lot of the, you know, the white colonists, et cetera, going to sort of like a tropical Southeast Asian island were overcome (laughs) by the heat and the humidity and the native women. And I I thought that was very interesting that that was, I didn't know that was a part of the American. Well, it also gets into
2: climate thinking, right? Because in the late 18th century, Mm -hmm. um, scientific racism hasn't taken over. And so the notion of race itself, um, was I mean not for Jefferson? He was in some ways an early scientific uh, racist thinker. The idea of race itself was transformable. Bodies were seen as transformable over an individual lifetime, and particularly mm-hmm. if you know you're a white settler who went to the tropics. There was this idea that your body could change, that your body was a porous mm-hmm. envelope. Um, and and so I I talk a lot about this in chapter two about Jefferson's climate thinking and where he draws the line between the tropical zone and the temperate zone. And of course, agrarian stability is associated with the temperate north. To
0: to go back a little to uh, chapter one for Melvis Pierre, um, you argue that the novel is mostly studied oh, yeah. as a family novel, um, but it's it's agrarian underpinnings you call like an absent presence that makes the mm-hmm. fear of unsustainable cities. It brings it to sort of like a feverish pitch. And I guess I have like two questions. One, why were 19th century Americans frightened of burgeoning urban areas? And also, why did you begin? You know, why why was that your sort of beginning of the of the book, the first chapter?
2: Yeah, well, it's certainly an odd place to begin, but it is the right place. Um, I mean, even as I was writing this book, I thought, should I put this chapter about the tropics and gothic fertility first? I thought, no, Mm -hmm. um, the the progression of the chapters is that we're kind of moving progressively outward beyond the U.S. Um, so he's talking about I mean Pierre really takes Jefferson's fantasy and turns it inside out. Um, the two realms that Jefferson was most afraid of were on the one hand old world aristocratic landholding estates. Mm-hmm. He was against that. He would go to Europe and and talk about how unsustainable it was to have these large manorial estates, and he really believed you know at least on paper. <laughs> That um, you know that 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 cultivators of the land, if you owned the land that you tilled, you're much more likely to be stable. You are much less likely mm-hmm. to have some sort of uprising. He was worried about the mobs mm-hmm. of great cities, for instance, mm-hmm. um, much more likely to have a stable economy. And the second realm that he was really worried of uh, about were these like you said, he calls, he called them, I think, a canker at one point, the mobs of great cities, these, mm. like this kind of unstable urban populations. Well, Pierre actually depicts those very realms, this kind of like Jefferson's nightmare. So like I said, I think it's important that we start with the dystopian fears yeah. that drove and motivated sustainability rhetoric first, because when people talk about sustainability, they try first to define sustainability. But actually, it's the absence of sustainability that gives insight into what's driving this this focus Mm -hmm. on uh, kind of finding this realm of sameness and perfection and Mm -hmm. um, intergenerational connection. Well, what we find is that when we look closely at this dystopian underbelly, the racial and reproductive subtext starts to become clearer. If we look just at Jefferson himself or if we look at writings like Wendell Berry, it continues to look really benevolent. But when you start to look at, well, what's the fear here? What's driving it? Um, And the other kind of broader context of chapter one are these land reform periodicals. Because I think Melville's novel is speaking to this broader context around land and labor reform, a really progressive cause, um, which is, is kind of thinking about establishing agrarian townships out West as a solution to truly unsustainable labor conditions um but like i said if you look closely at those descriptions there's also this sense of uncontrolled sexuality that imbues Mm -hmm. them yeah
1: i love the question what's the fear here as someone who studies a lot of that genre that asks that question i do think it's a very important question for pretty much everything but especially the environmental humanities you know when you're thinking about why something in society is happening why something in a certain you know fiction why was it portrayed that way what's the fear here whether it's you know interracial mixing whether it's collapse of resource availability you know a lot of that inspires movements and media and things that happen in our world because there's a fear of some kind that leads to that uh, yes, it's absolutely. it's been so it's been so good to talk to you abby i we do need to move to end on a roll now I feel like we could talk forever about your book. It's been so great to have you. So thank you. And thank you so yeah. much
2: for engaging so closely with the book. I appreciate the questions.
1: Yes, we love we love doing that. <laughs> if you have a book, <laughs> anyone listening, please come. We, we would love to read it. Um, OK, so we're going to move to end on a roll um, in which we have some more casual, fun questions to get to know you a little better. So I'm just going to roll a die and then we'll see what happens. Okay, it is number 9. All right, if you could only recommend one thing to someone starting out in the environmental humanities, what would it be? Book, advice, anything. So
2: my advice is don't try to be like everyone else in the field. Mm-hmm. Um the environmentalist movements, uh, many environmentalist movements and the environmental humanities suffer from similar tendencies and postures. And here I am thinking of Nicole Seymour's book, Bad Environmentalism. Mm -hmm. Bad Environmentalism is really inspiring because Nicole Seymour points out um, that these kind of similar tendencies and postures, moralism, sentimentalism, melancholy. My own work suffers suffers from this. Um, Sanctimony at times. And bad Mm -hmm. environmentalism is forcing us to think about more irreverent or ironic or even fun Mm -hmm. approaches that might be effective and that might involve different audiences or recruit more interest. And it does this without turning away from environmental justice causes. And I think about this with my teaching. Environmental humanities classes sometimes suffer from... um, this really debilitating pessimism. So, you know, what would it look like to integrate more fun, more comedy, even Mm -hmm. optimism to the environmental movement? I think environmental justice communities are doing this. Mm -hmm. Julie Z um, writes about creative placemaking in her book. Um, It doesn't all have to be doom and gloom, Um, even as anger can be motivating. uh, I think there's liberation. I think there's creativity and generativity in in, in recognizing our mutual vulnerability mm-hmm. in this situation um, so that's that's my advice is don't try to be yes. like everyone else i think that we can integrate more fun and yes. optimism here somehow somehow but i don't know <laughs> how to do I that i think that's a
1: great point point. and we've we've actually had um robin and joseph on previously if anyone wants to go listen to that episode about film environment comedy eco comedies on the big screen so please go listen to that episode as well if you want to learn more about how could we <laughs> have <Yeah>. more fun, <laughs> how could we think about our environmental movements other ways. Yeah, so why I'm,
0: you, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, I'm. I'm what my my mic is resting on right now is "Active mm-hmm. Hope" by Joanna Macy mm-hmm. and uh, Chris Johnston, which is sort of like an e- eco philosophy um, discussing sort of Buddhist ways to, you know, obviously have active hope um, toward our environment and and it talks about the the debilitating like nature of pessimism and how you know i think this was yeah. like 15 10 or 15 years old uh but i i agree with you and as someone who is joining environmental humanities it does it you know and actually friends who aren't in you know the field it it can feel a lot of doom and gloom um mm-hmm. and and i and i love i love going all the way back you know to, to Agrotopia's as well looking at how we approach uh, what would you call it like catastrophe how, how do we approach yeah. catastrophe as a mm-hmm. um as a movement i mean as a as a society as a you know as a country but how, how do we even approach it you know in our in our mm-hmm. studies i think is really interesting that's why I, that, it's funny that active mm-hmm. hope is what is what my mic is resting on right now but yeah thank you I, that's i love that
1: all right we're coming to the end of our episode now so we're gonna ask abby how can people find more about you and your work if you're willing to share social media an email, a website you may have? Is there some way people can learn more about you or contact you or in some way, you know, interact with you?
2: Sure. So um, yeah, of course, agrotopias is Googleable. on um, my faculty website. I do have a personal webpage abbygood.wordpress.com um, and you can contact me there, of course, or through my email. Um, I am unevenly and ambivalently on Twitter. Um, Same, <laughs> right? It's like really got one foot out the door there. Yeah. Um. So you can find find me there as well. Um. But yeah, it was great talking to you. I look forward to um, listening to this podcast and so many more. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for this venue. It's really refreshing to to have conversations like this. Um, so thank you for that.
1: Thank you, Abby. It's thank been you. amazing having you.
0: So if you know if you guys would like to be on the show or recommend someone to be on the show, please let us know. You can find us at email asley.ecocast at gmail.com. And yes, we are still on Twitter. One foot is maybe out the door. asley underscore ecocast on Twitter. Um, and there's also a link tree there on Twitter uh, with links to that info as well as to a Google form for episode proposals.
1: If you enjoy listening to EcoCast, you can help us reach a larger audience by reviewing, sharing, downloading, or subscribing to the podcast. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.